Vibes podcast with your host and registered dietitian, Lauren McCarthy. This podcast was created to bring awareness about gut health and how nutrition has the transformational power to help restore and bring balance to your body. Hey guys, welcome back. This is your host, Lauren. I'm excited to be bringing this second episode to you. We're going to be looking at understanding potential root causes that influence gut imbalances and kind of really introducing you to the dietitian's approach to looking at the body through a systems lens and taking um, a whole systems approach to understanding the root causes of common gut disorders and overall just chronic disease. First, we'll start off by looking into the STAIN method, which is stress, toxins, adverse food reactions, infections, also known as pathogens, nutritional imbalances. And then I will go further into more gut-specific methods that look at root causes, such as the DIGEN model, focusing on the digestion and absorption portion today, and I'll go in more in depth on the intestinal permeability, the gut microbiome and dysbiosis, the inflammatory immune response, and then the nervous system and future podcast episodes. So welcome and let's dig in. First, I encourage you to go ahead and put this episode on pause and go into the episode summary notes that I have linked to this podcast and pull up the integrative and functional medicine nutrition therapy radial diagram. This just will help bring a picture to your mind of uh, what I'm discussing. There have been several contributors to this radial model that dietitians and integrative practitioners use today. Swift, Noland, and Redmond are really amazing like contributors to this field of dietetics and coming up with this visual representation that we use today. So I encourage you, go pull that up um, while we continue this podcast. All right, so like I was saying earlier, I'm focusing more on the dietitian side, and we use the nutrition-focused physical exam to really look at the bigger picture and take a whole systems approach to find those underlying causes. And we work with other healthcare pr- practitioners to collaborate and really dig down and find the best therapy and interventions uh, for the individual And I'm emphasizing this system because if you look at our bodies, they are all integrated and intertwined. So when you're treating signs and symptoms with one medication, like say for eczema, it has a cascading effect into other systems. So when you're dealing with chronic disease, it is important to really look at every system and how they interact with each other because You may be influencing one system with a medication or therapy, but then it may cause another system to go out of balance and creating that rippling effect. That radial analogy and chart that I was discussing really just looks at all the potential factors that may influence uh, the underlying cause. And so the big ones are going to be your lifestyle, your environment, the food that you're intaking, even parts of your genetics. 
So even though you may have a genetic predisposition towards one health outcome or the other does not mean you're destined to burden whatever that chronic disease may be. Epigenetics is an outcoming field with lots of research. It's so fascinating. If you have any interest, I recommend doing your own dive into studies and looking into epigenetics. So studies have shown that even though you may have a gene that predisposes you for disease, you have the power to influence how that gene is expressed. So based off of what you eat, the environment you put yourself in, and the types of stressors can all influence that expression of that gene. And I won't really go far into that today because that's in a whole other wormhole that's just fascinating. We also look at biomarkers, metabolic pathways, and networks those body systems and how they work together, and then really looking into those nutritional, physical signs and symptoms. And then we'll create, we'll use all that knowledge and that input to assess the individual, come up with a diagnosis, intervention for treatment, and then we'll continue to monitor and evaluate those signs and symptoms and make adjustments according to how that person is responding to the treatment. So those external factors I was referring to earlier with the STAIN model, even lifestyle and environmental factors like nutrition, hydration, your sleep patterns, relaxation, movement or exercise, how well you respond and recover from stress is unreal, you guys. I can't emphasize how much just stress alone can have that negative impact on your body. I personally also struggled with, but uh, there was a time back in 2018, I was under a lot of stress with some cardiac um, health concerns that I was having. And it came to the point I had a seizure and had to refrain from driving and working for about six months. And so I really started some self-care and working on better stress management. Other things that can influence from lifestyle and environmental factors are relationships and like how you network or how if you're even just simply if you isolate or alone can create a type of stress. If you've had any past trauma, if there's any internal microorganisms um, within your body um, just from ingesting maybe Uh, like contaminated food or water, and then just environmental pollutants that you're exposed to on a daily basis. All right, so looking into that stain model, we're first going to start off with stress. The main causes are trauma, like death, divorce, even something as simple as overtraining your body, having a busy schedule, or even like a schedule where you're just go, 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 and your body's in that constant, elevated, heightened state of stress and not having any way to come back to relaxation um, will influence your stress response. And then even your intake of ultra-processed foods and snacks. What happens when you have that elevated stress level is it will increase the cortisol within your body, and especially in females, uh, that will tend to influence our weight management, in particular around our abdominal area, uh, just creating those imbalances within our body. So there's some really cool tests out there that 
check your cortisol levels in the morning, midday, and afternoon if you're ever curious on what those may be for yourself. I always like to look at myself as a little science experiment to adjust and do what I can to best optimize my body to its best of its ability. Managing stress will be a key intervention here to decrease those cortisol levels, which will help lower blood pressure, balance that proper fight or flight response. You can even improve your mood and concentration. Stress even uh, has an effect on your inflammatory response. If you are insulin sensitive or insulin resistant, so if you're pre-diabetic, diabetic, or you've been trying to like watch your food intake and exercise for some time now and your weight kind of is just stuck, sometimes I will just dig deeper into that insulin response because even though you're not diabetic or pre-diabetic, those environmental and lifestyle factors can influence that insulin response within your body. And also stress can affect the energy efficiency of our mitochondria. So those are the powerhouse of our cells. They are what take our food and turn them into energy for the rest of our body to use. And then managing stress, of course, is a great way to help decrease cardiovascular risk. Moving on to toxins, I want to like Kind of dig deeper into this section today. This is also kind of like another wormhole topic that if you really start thinking about, it can just kind of suck you in because there's no way you can completely 100% avoid things that you're exposed to. But just kind of being mindful and aware is very helpful. I'm going to bring up some key terms so that if you're interested in doing some more research on your own, you can kind of start using these. I've also provided like study references that I use in the podcast notes so that you can kind of use that to stem your research further. All right. So the main type of toxins are going to be like your chemical toxins. So those are any types of exposure from the soil that the food is grown in, water toxins, air, food, and even occupational. So if you work maybe in construction and around mold and old houses or asbestos and those types of occupations that have those toxic components to them. Just be aware of um, your surroundings and what you're actually getting yourself into and breathing in. And then another major uh, main type of toxin is your metabolic byproducts, um, also known as endotoxins. And the three main ones I'm going to focus on today are going to be your lipopolysaccharides, which for short is your LPS. And these are just a byproduct of enzyme activity. So what happens is these are naturally found in your gut and are completely normal and have no health concerns. When it becomes a concern and when toxicity arises is when these LPS molecules begin crossing that gut barrier, uh, creating that inflammatory response and increased risk of health concerns once they reach that bloodstream. So the main concern here would be like if you have leaky gut or when you're eating too many fatty foods that it it's kind of brought through that gut barrier into your bloodstream. LPS is something to kind of put on your radar 
And then ammonia is another one. So the main source, again, is in the GI tract as a byproduct of protein digestion. But it is something that we do use to synthesize non-essential amino acids for other cellular processes. So just because something has the potential to be toxic doesn't mean it's always harmful. It's just finding that balance and making sure that there's no imbalance in these toxins. The ammonia is metabolized mainly in the liver. It can affect your kidneys. And so there's more concern when your body's not able to excrete the excess ammonia or use readily in cellular processes. So it builds up in the body and becomes toxic and usually puts stress on your liver and kidneys. And then the last one that is kind of interesting. So in a study by Goldberg, they looked at glycotoxins and glycotoxins are formed from basically the breakdown of protein binding with like glucose in the body as a result of high temperature and particular cooking methods such as broiling and frying. Goldberg and her associates looked at glycotoxins and specifically which foods have higher glycotoxins when cooked at high temperatures using those dry cooking methods. They found out that lipids such as butter, margarine, mayo, processed cream cheese express the highest amount of glycotoxins and then protein was uh, a second, mainly like cheese followed by beef. And then the food source that was lowest was actually carbohydrates. And if those did have any glycotoxins, it was mainly in like your processed foods. So Kind of just keep in mind like what temperature you're cooking foods at. Uh, is it exposed to that temperature too long? And really, this is just a, a buildup over time. So it's seen more in elderly, but it is seen across all ages when foods are cooked at very, very, very high temperatures. That was pretty fascinating and an interesting tidbit on into toxins. And then also toxins, their main result on the body is that they promote insulin resistance and can potentially lead to metabolic syndrome. A lot of the times metabolic syndrome gets a bad rap thinking it's only occurs in people who are overweight, but really any time that there's like an imbalance in how different nutrients and metabolites are utilized within the body can lead to metabolic syndrome. The key factors kind of used to help diagnose metabolic syndrome. Now, this podcast is not to diagnose. It's really for informational purposes. But if you feel like you may be at risk, I definitely recommend you go see your your healthcare provider and kind of discuss this with them. Few criteria for metabolic syndrome is when you have like three or more of the following. If you have a larger waistline, so greater than 35 inches for females, greater than 45 inches for males. If you have high BP, high blood sugar or blood glucose, high blood triglycerides. And the one that kind of sneaks in there is having a low HDL. So our HDL is known as your good cholesterol. So a lot of times we focus so much on do we have high cholesterol and high fat lipids in our blood and we completely leave out 
the good guy and not recognizing if that might be too low. Criteria is usually three or more of those together over a prolonged period of time. So if you feel like you might be at risk, doesn't hurt to just go have a conversation with your healthcare provider. Also, toxins can influence that mitochondria, which, like I was saying earlier, is the powerhouse of our energy production. So if there's a kink in that process due to toxins, we're not going to be able to utilize what we're eating to the best of its ability. All right, moving on to adverse food reactions. This specifically is focusing more on allergies, intolerances, sensitivities, and then the lovely SAD diet, aka the standard American diet. A brief overview, the standard American diet today uh, usually consists of high intakes of added fat, salt, and sugar from those processed packaged foods, junk food, fast food, your refined grains. Complex carbohydrates are great and um, carbohydrates get such a bad rap, but it's more of watching our intake of those refined carbohydrates like your cookies, your crackers, your pastries, the refined breads that are um, have kind of like stripped that fiber. So looking more for those whole grain products when you are um, choosing a good carbohydrate source. Lots of red meat, highly processed meat like high sodium, high fat, deli meat, sausages, sugar sweetened beverages. And then not only is it eating those foods, but also a significant reduction in the intake of eating fruits and vegetables, whole, whole grains, legumes, and lean protein. That is your standard American diet that can lead to adverse food reactions and then to those gut imbalances. But um, I'm going to dig a little deeper into allergies and tolerances and sensitivities because this is those at-home sensitivity tests are gaining in popularity. And I just want to bring attention to the fact that these tests that are looking for the IgG antibody to a food. And I just first want to say that the IgG response is not supported or validated by scientific research. And what happens a lot is individuals will take this test, see that they have this high response, um, these high IgG antibodies to the these foods, and then they completely eliminate these items out of their diet thinking that they're allergic and end up becoming nutrient deficient, malnourished. And what the IgG really is, it tests our normal response for food tolerance. And what that means is, for instance, say this week I am just indulging in mangoes. I love mangoes. Summer is perfect for them. And I like to eat some tahini with my mangoes, um, some lime, and then I might serve it over some oatmeal. So I'm eating that frequently. Let's just say I'm eating that every day. And then I go and take an IgG test, which is these at-home sensitivity tests. It's going to show that I have high IgG for a mango, tahini, oatmeal, and lime because my body's constantly exposed to it. What you want to do instead is work with an allergist, a dietitian, your healthcare provider, well, shoot, probably all three, to look at your IgE, 
which is an immediate response reaction to foods, which is an indicator of a true allergy. And then also there's the IgA response, which is a delayed response reaction to food. And this can indicate a potential food sensitivity or food intolerance. A big one here would be lactose intolerance. It's good to get like a full picture and get all those antibodies and not just one. And working with healthcare professionals that are experienced and experts in that field to give you proper guidance and instructions so that you are not eliminating something that you actually need. That's my two cents on the allergies and tolerance and sensitivity, especially at those um, popular take-home tests. Top common food allergens are milk, eggs, fish, shellfish, nuts such as tree nuts and peanuts, wheat and soy. Common allergen reactions, and I have these split up based on the body system. So for respiratory A lot of the times we think you are allergic to something when you are experiencing anaphylaxis. You can't breathe, closing of the throat, hives, rash, itching. Those are very common, noticeable and visible signs of an allergy. But what you might not know is that even something as like a stuffy nose or runny nose, asthma, These are some signs and symptoms of an allergen reaction. It could be food, it could be to your environment, but it is nice to notice and just be aware of if you are experiencing these on a daily basis to go see an allergist and get a a food allergen panel um, that's real in depth. For skin and mucous membranes, so like I was saying, eczema, hives, swelling of deep tissues, itching around the eye, skin, ears, and mouth. Those are really noticeable, very irritating, um, very easy to pinpoint. And then in the digestive tract, a lot of inflammation can occur in response to an allergen. Once there's too much inflammation, it will inhibit or reduce the amount of absorption of the food that you're eating. But big ones are diarrhea, constipation, bloating, distension, You might have some abdominal pain, some indigestion, and some burping. Reactions within the nervous system could be migraines and headaches, lack of concentration, irritability, um, having the chills, and even dizziness. And then just other kind of non-system related allergy responses are frequent urination, excessive sweating, pallor, hoarseness, and muscle aches. That's a little insight onto adverse food reactions. And then infections and pathogens is the next kind of broad umbrella category for understanding and identifying imbalances. And this, you just have to go and visit with your primary care provider and have some testing done. You can do a stool testing. There's some blood test. Um, They will know the best testing that would be best if they are suspecting a viral, bacterial, fungal, mold, a parasite, even tick-borne diseases that might develop. I'm not going to go further into that. That's not my area of great expertise. So definitely talk with your healthcare provider Um, if you have a concern for any potential pathogens or infections. And then lastly, out of the STAIN model is those nutritional imbalances and factors that can lead to imbalances there would be your poor diet, 
if you have any genetic coding that makes you more predisposed to nutritional imbalances, drug-induced nutrient depletion. So if you're on a bunch of meds, I definitely recommend just having a consult with a dietitian and seeing what any potential uh, drug-nutrient interactions they may be. When you are on multiple, it is common to have some nutrients that are getting deplenished. So it's important to supplement with whole food sources or even dietary supplements to rebalance that deficiency. You can get nutritional imbalances from soil quality, maldigestion, malabsorption, dysbiosis. So those are more of your your gut root causes. And then just the lovely process of aging. Some take-homes for stain is... Number one, reducing stress. That is establishing a nighttime routine. Disconnect from technology, from anything with the screen within one to two hours, going to bed, read a book, take a hot bubble bath, whatever it is that you like to do. Establish something that you can do on a daily basis to get your system to wind down and relax and get out of that heightened uh, state of stress at the end of the day. Exercise is another great way to reduce stress. Some people are more morning exercisers. Some are more PM. I have to work out not late at night because I have a condition known as POTS um, and syncope. So I will stay in an elevated state of stress, even if it's exercise for hours. And the only way to reset is really for my blood pressure and my heart rate to completely plummet. Um, I usually pass out and then I will sleep. Find ways that work for you. Yoga, meditation, breathing exercises are some great ways to help reduce stress. Tai Chi is another option. Um, Breathing exercises you can do throughout the day, even if you work in a high stress work environment. And then, you know, if you want to play some music, dance around, just, you know, let it out. For allergies and tolerances, my take home for this is get a proper testing, work with a healthcare provider and a dietitian to go through an elimination diet. And with an elimination diet, that's not a permanent diet to be on. It's not meant to be a long lasting diet. It's really just to find those triggers, foods, and if you do have a true allergy intolerance, then obviously you'll have to eliminate it. But when you work with a dietitian and healthcare provider, they will do a gradual reint- reintroduction of those foods to see that, that response that you have. And then you can refer to an allergist for even further allergy testing. I recommend having a food journal. You can use apps like MyFitnessPal, LoseIt, Chronometer. There are so many out there. Find one that's user-friendly for you. If you specifically have ha- ever had bariatric surgery, Berytastic is a great app to use as well. It's specifically for the bariatric population. But if you have any questions on those, reach out through my contact email and I'll be glad to answer any questions that you may have. But I use the food journal to track mood, any signs and symptoms, specifically like any skin symptoms, itching, rash, watery eyes. GI upset, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, the type of bowel movement. I know that sounds, I mean, we're getting dirty, but it is all part of how our system works. And it's a sign telling you that there's something not right going on. 
abdominal pain? Are you bloated? Are you gassy? Mood is a good one. Like, if you're more irritable. And then even further, I'm going to discuss in a future podcast episode is a dietitian method called the five R's to dig further. And it's to remove, replace, repair, replenish, and rebalance the body based on some food triggers. All right, moving into part two, digging into more of a gut focused. That was a whole systems approach, looking at everything within the body that could be an underlying cause, um, root cause to what you're experiencing. And then this is specifically more gut related, focusing on the digestion absorption for this episode. But there are five primary categories of digin, like I was saying, digestion, intestinal permeability, gut microbiota or dysbiosis, inflammatory immune responses, and then the nervous system. Looking at digestion and absorption, there's four main areas to focus and hone in on as a dietitian. We look at motility, gastric acid production or reduced production, pancreatic enzymes, and bile salts. Looking at motility, if it is a peristalsis, so peristalsis is the mechanism that involuntary moves food through your colon. It's a series of like contraction and movements. Individuals are placed on a prokinetic by their healthcare provider. From a nutrition standpoint, something as simple as chewing your food very well, thinking like 20 to 30 chews before you swallow it, really breaking it down before you, uh, before that food gets to your stomach um, will help with motility of food and then how fast are you eating are you gulping down the food getting a bunch of air in there creating some air pockets that could affect the motility of food and then common disorders such as GERD diarrhea constipation IBS SIBO and gastroparesis all have an effect on the motility of our GI tract some nutrition tips for maintaining motility would be to make sure you're getting your daily fiber intake. So minimum of that 25 grams per day for ladies, 35 grams for males. Incorporating some probiotic rich and fermented foods, increasing your fruit and vegetable intake, adding in those whole grains, seeds, legumes. And of course, so a lot of these foods have fiber. When you increase fiber, you want to increase and make sure you have adequate water intake. Otherwise, you're just going to keep stopping yourself up. And then, I'm sorry, another great supplement to try is magnesium to help with some bowel movements as well. Other strategies are exercise and then deep breathing techniques. Looking into gastric acid, gastric acid is important for protein and fat digestion It's important for iron absorption, and it helps protect against bacterial infections. And take note, pause if you need to grab a pen. So here's a a brief home test. It's not necessarily supported by scientific research, but lots of clinicians have used this in practice, and it has been a helpful tool. And then just follow up with your your doctor and dietitian for further evaluation. But a quick take-home Um, test that you can do is get four ounces of water, put in a quarter teaspoon of baking soda, set a timer for five minutes, 
And if you have normal gastric acid production, you will be burping within those five minutes. If it's longer than five minutes and nothing, no burping has occurred, it might be an indicator that you have low gastric acid, uh, stomach acids. Again, get further testing and insight from your healthcare provider. Nutrition that can help support gastric acid production is betaine HCL supplement with some pepsin, digestive enzymes. You can make or buy Swedish bitters, vinegar, even stress management and acupuncture. Looking at pancreatic enzymes and bile salts, there is an insufficiency in these substrates. Um, It will look similar to other GI problems such as gas, bloating, stomach pain, weight loss, and then fat in our stools. It kind of gets overlooked sometimes because it's very similar to other GI distress. Proper assessment and lab testing is needed to truly see your pancreatic enzyme levels. One specifically is pancreatic elastase. You can ask your PCP for a direct pancreatic function test and a bile absorption test if you're curious about uh, learning more uh, of what your levels are. All right, home stretch. Um, So I just want to leave it with these nutrition tips to help with overall nourishment and balance. With hydration, aim for at least 64 fluid ounces of water per day. And of course, your intake will vary based on any physical activity. If you're pregnant, have any other health conditions, and if you're out in the heat. Adding in um, at least two to three cups of vegetables per day. If you're looking at a plate method, making sure half that plate is filled with those non-starchy, cruciferous vegetables. Onions, leek, and garlic are also beneficial as well. And then incorporating two to three cups of fruit per day, such as berries, kiwi, grapes, apples, pears, apricots, cherries. Um, These are great sources of fiber as well. And then even trying out some anti-inflammatory spices like turmeric, ginger, rosemary, basil, and cayenne. Fiber intake of about 25 grams per day for females, 35 grams for males, and then Influence a microbiome that's diverse. Include some fermentable fibers. Fermentable fibers. Pectins are found commonly in apples, grapefruit, carrots, oranges, lemons. Be careful if you are on a lot of medications. Um, Grapefruit tends to be a big food that interacts with medications. Check to see if any of your, your medications might be influenced by grapefruit. Beta-glucans, those are found in oats, barley, shiitake mushrooms, yeast, seaweed, and algae. And then gargum, um, commonly found in yogurt, soups, and ice cream, inulin. You can find in leeks, asparagus, onions, soybean, and oats. And then you can even try some fermented foods like kefir, kombucha, kimchi, yogurt, and sauerkraut. Limit those saturated and trans fats to less than 10% of your total daily intake. It's best to aim for less than 7% and then the trans fat being less than 1% per day. Limit your sodium to less than 2,400 milligrams per day. This is just a great heart-healthy guideline. And if you're looking for more specific guidance on nutrition, the DASH diet and Mediterranean diet are great places to start if you're needing a little bit more guidance. Of course, you're always welcome. Find a 
local registered dietitian near you, eatrightpro.org has a find a nutrition expert feature that will help you find a professional in your area if you are needing more guidance. Well, that is all for today. And I just want to thank you all for joining in and listening. Please, if you have like a gut health story that you would like to share, questions, even like a certain topic that you might be interested in hearing about, feel free to email me at hello at the gutvibespodcast.com or my contact information on the website. Thank you again for tuning in and I can't wait for our next episode together. Uh, We'll be digging into that um, intestinal permeability and I have a guest speaker lined up coming towards the end of October on gut health and how it influences weight management. Stay tuned and thank you again. Have a great night.